This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Are they the tears of a nation weeping? Or a soothing rain forever trying to wash away the horror of what happened here? This is where the Twin Towers stood. Look down. You cannot see the bottom. And you cannot come here and forget for a moment that achingly perfect blue sky morning, September 11th, 2001. Oh, right oh there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> right. oh my God. When the planes hit. When the towers fell. When nearly 3,000 people died on this spot. It is hallowed ground. Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violis. Welcome to Security Matters, where your security matters most. I'm Paul Violis, and this is a CBS News radio production. Yesterday, the world stood still and remembered September 11th, 2001, in an attack orchestrated by Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden, 19 men hijacked four commercial airplanes, leaving 2,977 dead in New York City, Washington, D.C., and outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Ages of victims ranged from two to 85. It all started at 8.46 in the morning when American Airlines Flight 11 traveling from Boston to L.A. struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 9.03 Eastern. United Airlines Flight 175 traveling from Boston to L.A. struck the South Tower of the Trade Center. At 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 traveling from Dulles, Virginia to Los Angeles struck the Pentagon. And at 10.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 93, traveling from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco, crashed in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. As we reflect on this horrific tragedy, we know that we witnessed evil in its purest sense, and yet we also saw the courage, the strength, the compassion, the love, the beauty of the human spirit. Our first responders, police, firefighters, paramedics, ran into what no one could ever describe. There's no word in the dictionary to describe what these incredibly brave women and men ran into without any concern for their personal safety and with their primary objective to save as many lives as they possibly could. 
Every one of us will always remember where we were that day. Those of us that were there remember what we saw, will remember what we smelled, will remember what we, we felt like, what our skin burned like. But the people that were there, the people that truly showcased the beauty of the American spirit, those are the people that we will always remember as well. I am so privileged, and everyone here at CBS News Radio is so privileged to have Assistant Chief Teresa Tobin from the New York City Police Department joining us. Chief Tobin joined the department in 1983. When I tell you that she worked her way up through the ranks, she worked her way up through the ranks to her current position as a two-star chief and the commanding officer of the Office of Collaborative Policing. In addition to her brilliant career, Chief Tobin has earned a PhD and a Master of Arts degree in criminal justice from the State University of New York and a Master of Social Work from Fordham University and a Bachelor of Science degree in Sociology and Social Work from Marist College. In 97, she, I'm sorry, she also graduated in 1997 from the FBI Academy in Quantico and is a 2006 graduate of the Police Management Institute at Columbia University. During her career, Chief Tobin has received numerous honors and medals, all of which, all of which showcase her heroism and the beauty of her human spirit, including the NYPD's Medal of Valor and a special congressional recognition in honor of her heroism, bravery, and sacrifice during the tumultuous events of, sub of September 11, 2001, where on that morning, then Lieutenant Tobin, was one of the first responders to the World Trade Center attacks. She began to assist the evacuation of civilians when the South Tower collapsed. She was seriously injured. A chunk of concreted pierced her ballistic helmet, if you can imagine that, splitting in half and became embedded in her skull. During her injuries, despite her injuries, including a broken ankle and a shard glass in her back, she continued her rescue efforts. She was finally removed to the hospital and taken into surgery. By the grace of God, and by the grace of God alone, is Chief Tobin still with us. And it's because of her, and it's because of so many people like her from the fire department and the police department and the paramedics, that we can look back on that day and remember just how great this country is. Without further ado, on behalf of everybody here at Security Matters and all of us at CBS News Radio, I want to welcome Chief Tobin to the show. Chief, truly can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thank you, Paul. As I want to get right into this. Chief, take us back to how your day started on September 11, 2001, right up to when and how you were notified of the attack. So September 11, 2001 um, was a beautiful day, and I remember it was election day in New York, and I got up and was at the poll as it opened um, to vote, and then wound up coming in to work early. Um, at the time, I was assigned to the Deputy Commissioner of Public Information's office, and what we did in the morning was go through what had occurred the night before and going over the schedule of events for the day. So just after we had gotten started to you know work on that morning of September 11th a sergeant came running into my office and said a plane just hit the world trade center we need to he head over and chief tom fahey who was the commanding officer of the unit at the time um called and said head over and please get give me a call when you get there 
So then rather than try to fight the traffic across town, we jumped on the FDR Drive and, and swung around um, the end of the island towards the World Trade Center. But I have to be honest, when we first heard, and it was actually a member of the media who called DCPI and said, listen, something just occurred, uh, we think a plane went into the World Trade Center, um, in our minds, or at least I thought, that this was a small Cessna um, that was on its way to an airport in New Jersey and that maybe the pilot had had a heart attack and clipped the World Trade Center by accident. But as we got on the FDR drive going south, um, the volume of paper, it was like a ticker tape parade. So whatever had happened, I think we realized at that point was of a magnitude that we had not expected. As you and, and who could have expected? I mean, and now, now as you arrived on scene, describe to us the events that unfolded. Well, I know that we arrived at 8.54, and I remember the time because my text pager, if you remember those beepers, oh, had gone that. off. Yes. <laughs> and it, it said that the highest level of mobiliz- mobilization had been called for the World Trade Center at Church and Vesey Streets. So we parked on the east side of West Street, and the mobilization was diagonal uh, to where we had put the car. So, um, as you know, the North Tower had been hit first. Right. The streets were already closed down because of glass and debris. And we had to kind of scoot around on the outskirts. And as we were doing that, the second plane hit right after 9 o'clock. And, you know, the telephone, television images from that day really don't give the impression of how bad it was when the second plane hit. Um, as the building was heating up, all the windows were popping out, and you can imagine the windows breaking into shards and falling to the ground. Um, And, you know, then we started to see people jumping, and and it was horrendous. Um, You know, at first we did a double take because the buildings, as you know, were over 110 stories tall. And I thought, oh, God, something is coming down, and we had... Um, members of our emergency service unit with binoculars um, doing visuals of uh, falling debris. But then we realized, um, you know, the little speck um, became bigger and bigger, and, and then we would, we would realize w- when it was a human being. And, you know, some people jumped alone and, and some in groups and, and held hands. So I can't imagine what hell it must have been inside there with jumping being the better alternative. Um, the fierceness of that fire just had to be absolutely um, awful. And as we approached the mobilization uh, area, at the, um, I saw our then First Deputy Commissioner, Joe Dunn, and he told me that there was a report of a third plane in the area and to get a helmet on. And there was an emergency service unit truck parked there, so... I jumped on the truck and grabbed two helmets, you know, one for myself and one for the sergeant who was with me. And um, it's the Kevlar helmets, so it's, it's very heavy, but it's specifically made for combat situations because it can take bullets and uh, hard hits. And after I got the helmet on, I, I saw a news crew. And really our job in DCPI was to kind of corral the, the press together and get information to them out as quickly as possible so we could start doing emergency broadcasts. 
we needed to let the public know that there were areas that were in the frozen zone, which trains were stopped, where the people were being directed to evacuate, and all the other mechanical pieces uh, of a disaster. And um, I went into the North Tower looking for, for press. And to be honest with you, it was amazing how calm people were. Everything was going very smoothly because I think those people were familiar with the evacuation drills, um, which I believe began occurring after the 1993 uh, bombing. At one point, I know there was an hour-long backup to the 31st floor just because of the volume of people making it down down the accessible stairways. But everything was really going pretty smoothly. And um, I'm telling you that everywhere you looked, there was a cop. For people coming out of the towers, there was absolutely no thinking. They didn't come down and have to wonder, where do I go? It wasn't mass confusion at all. Every five feet, there was a, uh, an officer saying very calmly, please exit to your left, exit to your left. So there was, no, there was this very obvious route, just follow the blue. Terry, I want to jump in real quickly so that everyone can kind of get a picture of this. Close your eyes and get a picture of this, right, what Chief Tobin is saying right now. She's talking about police officers that are in the middle, the ground floor of a 110-story building that's been struck by a a commercial airplane that's on fire, that's falling apart with windows that are, are exploding, and calmly they are directing people. At the same time, though, Terry, in addition to you serving your role at the DCPI's office, you're also concerned to make sure that the general public doesn't get to this area. Am I correct? So you're doing both. Right. You know, and, and as, as we're directing people, you know, don't forget we had, um, at the same time, firefighters coming in and going up, as well as people who had come down to the concourse level and needed medical assistance. So EMS was um, there with us in the lobby. The, the response by emergency personnel was absolutely phenomenal. Now, this um, is, you have to admit, Terry, this is obviously the quintessential example of collaboration between agencies. Would you not say that? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think we had a full grasp of the seriousness. Um, Obviously, at this point, where the the second plane went in, we knew that this was an intentional act, and we knew the seriousness of um, the task that we had in front of us in terms of evacuating the people out. Now, who in a situation like that, specifically, you've got the New York City Police Department, You've got the FDNY, the fire department in New York. You've got paramedics. And yet, it's somewhat calm. So there was no question as to who was in charge and who was responsible for what. It seemed, if, if I'm understanding correctly, from your eyes, it seemed that everybody knew what they needed to do when they were executing those duties. Paul, that's exactly what was happening. I think... Um, Instinctively, uh, first responders, because we train, 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 that when the situation occurs, we fall right back into that mode. And that's where the, the amount of energy and time that we spend training really kicks in. And it was very obvious that day. And now you're in the lobby. Take us back to that. You're in the lobby, and you've got members of the New York City Police Department that are coordinating the evacuation you've got fdny that's responding to the crisis and and tell us take us from from there on what happens next so i came across a photographer 
um, that was taking pictures of people as they were descending um, the concourse uh, on the concourse level, but because the elevator was out of order, people were walking down. And he was clicking away, but people slow down when they see a photographer, whether it's unconscious or not. So I said to him, I realize that you have a job to do, um, so continue taking your shots, but I, I will walk you backwards um, out of the building because um, we, this is a frozen area and we, we need you to uh, not be in here. And he was agreeable, and, and when I got out of the building, I handed him off to a, an officer that was in the frozen area saying, could you just escort him? to a specific location where we were going to gather up people. And I thought then, wow, this is going to be a really long day, and my car wasn't far away, so I said, you know what, I'm going to run um, and put on my sneakers that I had in the trunk of the car. And I got close enough to pop the trunk with the remote, but then I heard a loud rumbling sound, and it sounded like a train, to be honest with you. Really? And I, I turned around, and, and I left my trunk open, and started walking back under the overhang of the South Tower, uh, South Tower. And I was thinking, where is this train coming from? Like if um, you could think of an elevated freight train, uh, an elevated train right. that we have in the city. Right. Um, and it just wasn't clicking with me that there was no elevated train there, and that was a very bizarre sound um, since everything is underground there. And I guess it was almost like I couldn't see the forest from the trees. I mean, I was right there, and if I had looked up, I would have known that the building was starting to pancake down. Right. Then, I saw, then I saw people running towards me, and they were screaming, go, 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 it, it's coming down. And just for a second, I looked up, and I thought, uh, I'm not going to outrun this. But then I thought, maybe I can make it back to my car and jump in the back seat. I don't, but before I could make a, uh, a move, the force of the explosion literally blew me out of my shoes. Oh, and it, it lifted me and propelled me out over a concrete barrier to the other side of the street where I landed uh, face first on a grassy area outside the financial center. So, um, I, you know, I just landed there and started to get pelted with debris coming out of this big black cloud. And, you know, the first thing that comes to my head now is, is thank God that you had that helmet on. That's exactly because... Um, you know, it, it's not so much what I felt, but it was hearing the whomp, you know, of my helmet when I, when I got hit in the head. And the helmet literally went crack and split in half and fell off my head. Um, I realized that I had taken a very big whack in the back of the head, and I could feel the blood going down the back of my neck. And when I was able to reach around, I felt this chunk of cement sticking out from the back of my head. Um, but it was completely embedded in my skull. And then it got pitch black, and I thought, I must have been knocked unconscious because it's usually, it, it's just totally black. Right. But then I thought, <laughs> I, I mean, ironically, Paul, then I thought I wouldn't be thinking about how black it is if I was unconscious. It's perfect. But it was, <laughs> right, right, you know? Right. <laughs> but exactly. You're, but you're speaking to the smoke that filled that area, Chief, am I not, right? I mean, that's exactly, you know, and, you know, so it's totally dark. It was so difficult to breathe, and uh, all I could hear was people uh, screaming. Um, there were all sorts of cries, and truly at that moment I thought, this is it. We, we are all going to die on the street. And yet, though, and yet, and I'm, and I'm not glossing this over. I'm understating, and that you, you have a broken ankle, 
your ballistic helmet is split in half. I can't overemphasize that. You, you have a foreign object embedded in your skull, and yet you continued your rescue efforts. Right. <clears throat> you know, but you know, I want to just back up. Like, I had, I had help, you know, because, you know, as I was laying there, um, you know, the pile just kept, you know, you were, I was physically being pelted, you know, and, um, and all of a sudden, you know, there were these huge, ex- huge explosions. And, and I thought that I actually thought when those explosions began that we were being bombed. Um, but, um, but actually it was the I didn't tower think there would down. be a way out. Well, I think what was happening is that gas tanks of like an ambulance were catching fire and just mm-hmm. exploding, you know, um, and I don't know how much time had passed, but I knew my eyes were burning and, and it was coughing and my nose was running. Um, but from underneath the rubble, a short distance from me, I saw the silhouette of a firefighter's helmet. And he turned on his flashlight and shouted over and asked me if I was okay. And then instructed me to cover my mouth and nose with the front of my shirt. And as I reached around, I, I touched someone's hand. And I couldn't see him, but at least I had hold of his fingers. And I said, I'm with the NYPD, and there's a firefighter on my right, and repeated the instructions that the firefighter had given to me. And then it started to clear. It went from total blackness to what seemed like a white ash, but it was actually pulverized cement sweeping through the air. And I was realized that I was buried under all the rubble, and I was finally able to move the top part of my body out, but my legs were still buried. So I said to this person whose hand I was holding, I'm going to try to try and get up, but I won't let you go. And as I lifted the upper part of my body out and I pulled on him, um, he came up too easily. And I looked down and realized that I had just had a hold of a hand and an arm, but no one was attached to it. And you, at that moment, you still kept your composure. Well, you know, there's a sense of panic that, you know, I went back down and started digging through the rubble because I thought someone must be there, but I couldn't find a body. I had, I had an arm, but couldn't find the person it belonged to. Um, and then, and then the thing, you know, then I began thinking, is this a hand from one of the plane victims, the arm of someone who jumped or, or of someone who was running and got hit with debris? I just didn't know. And, and honestly, I will never know. And all I could do at that moment uh, was say a prayer. And, you know, it was, if this person's alive, I hope the rest of his limbs are intact. But in all likelihood that the person was gone, I just uh, said a prayer for his his spirit. And I I hoped it was quick, because that's about the only thing at that point um, I could pray for, that it was quick, because it was so atrocious. Is How do you make it to the ambulance at this point? So... Um, as I got untangled from the um, building, uh, the firefighter came over, um, asked if I was right, and then he yelled to EMS, uh, to EMS that, that I had cement in uh, my head. And two EMTs came over. They knew they couldn't get the cement out, so they wrapped my head. Um, my hair was singed, and I was covered in the white stuff um, that you see so often in the photos associated with the World Trade Center on that right. day. And, and I could smell burning hair and, and burning flesh. Um, and the odors were really, really bad. Um, and people were really throwing up. You could just um, hear the choking sound of people just wanting to spit out all that blackness to clear it out of their lungs. 
course. And and I and I you know I was trying to cough all that stuff out too. I had just inhaled two minutes worth of this dark black smoke and and this white stuff, and I don't even know what it was. And I remember I spit out of a, a, a chunk of what I thought was cement, but that wasn't uh, it, it. The force of being hit on the head had um, knocked out my wisdom tooth, um, root and all. Just picture as, as you know as you're saying this, and I'm asking everybody to kind of take all this in because you've got, in addition to everything that Chief Tobin's going on, going through, you've got mass chaos. You have a 110-story building that's come down. You have explosions. And the other part about this, too, Chief, that you, you alluded to is there are multiple vehicles in this area that are part of this explosion because you've got vehicles now that are filled with gas, and you're contending with, with them at the same time as the tower's coming down. Correct. And I one time heard someone um, describe the scene. It was like those massive fire engines were like little tinker toys that just got thrown or tipped over um, without, uh, to just put it in perspective of the force of that building coming down. Now, how were you able to make it to, to an ambulance? Or did, did the paramedics come and get you out of there? No. So what happened, this was um, after the... Um, the t- first tower had gone down, and there were four of us standing there. It became very, very uh, quiet. It was eerily quiet, and, and we didn't hear anything. And, um, you know, um, then we began to make out really subtle sounds, and we knew that the people that were in that area were generally rescue workers, because no civilians had come out that way. Right. And it had been the rescue people that had been running towards me. So the, the blue and the, the black uniforms and, um, you know, radios were just there and picking up and there was difficult uh, communication. And we came across a, a fire truck and firefighters are taught to roll under um, uh, their vehicle, uh, under a truck, if there is a building collapse. Right. And so... That occurred, but then what happened was there was no way out. So um, the four of us began uh, listening very closely. We had the voices and then digging um, as quickly as we could. And we were able to um, pull um, several people, uh, several firefighters out from underneath the truck. Um, But then another whole group of people came running towards us saying, you know, the other tower is coming down, run, run. And um, I was thinking, where, where am I going to go? Um, right. I and was I'm just familiar, say I was familiar with the area, but, you know, you all, I, I was feeling extremely vulnerable, to be honest with you. Um, you know, without a helmet, I had no shoes. Um, I thought, okay, I'm going to run into the water. Um, and if I got into the water, at least I could go underwater and be somewhat protected. Um, but um, I turned around, and I think that you, we've all seen the footage of that rolling cloud right. and um, looking at that coming at me, um, I ran, um, I, I, was, I was running towards a building and I got whacked uh, in the back and I went straight down to my knees. And as that cloud was coming, I just knew I needed to get inside. 
So I opened up a door and I, I went in. And I was thinking at first that the building was under construction because all I saw were the white lights and yellow cages. And it never dawned to me that they had lost their electricity. And I followed those lights into the elevator bank. And all the elevators were stopped on the first floor. But um, the smoke started to come in. And I opened up the stairwell door. And to my surprise, um, there were about 100 people lined up on the stairwell who who were dressed um, like they had just left their apartment. Um, They were... You know, some people looked like they had just coming out of um, uh, the shower. Um, there were little babies. And um, after things had cleared a bit, I told them that we had to get out because I thought, to be honest with you, I thought every building in Lower Manhattan was, uh, was going to come down. Sure. So um, we went out to the lobby, um, but I, I told people to stay away from the windows. And I went to the front door. And outside it had turned to that white ash again that I had referenced before. And it was exactly um, the same scenario. But I saw two people from our technical assistance response unit. They had shirts, and on the back of their shirts was T-A-R-U in big letters. And I I just opened the door and I shouted, Taru. And they turned immediately, and and I knew one of the guys, Pete. um, And I said, listen, we've got to get these people out. And so it was then that he was telling me that they were evacuating people by boat to Jersey. So um, we, were, we were devising a plan of how we were going to move them. And it was then uh, that he, he was the person that told me that I had um, glass sticking out between my shoulder blades. So when I had gotten hit in the back, um, that's what had happened. A piece of glass had um, come through my blouse between my shoulder blades, but got embedded in there. So, so you have, um, but now chief, you've got glass in your head and you've got it in your back and you've got a broken ankle. At this right. Point. But I, I don't know, you know, your adrenaline is going, That's right? So I feel right. like my, you know, my head was wrapped. I was unaware of the, the glass, to be honest with you. I mean, I knew I had gotten, it felt like I had been punched in the back, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize it was still there. And, um, I didn't know my ankle was broken. I mean, it hurt, but in right. light of, all the other circumstances. But yet the totality of this is the fact that you're going through all this personally, and which is why, as I was mentioning before, you epitomize really the the strength and the compassion and the selfless nature of the first responders at that point and people, first responders across the board, of you weren't even thinking of yourself, you had no regard for yourself, you weren't even thinking about what's happening to you physically. You were more concerned with how many people you could help. And and this is the point, Chief, that I really want to, and I, I'm saying this for you because you know what? you It, it needs to be said. I mean, I, I'm blessed to consider you a friend, but in the totality of this incident, in the totality of this tragedy, everything that you're saying to me is when all of our listeners sit down and everyone in America that listens to this show and, and to everybody, to all of our listeners at CBS News Radio, this is what a hero is all about. The one that doesn't want to take credit and it just keeps thinking of everybody else. The way that, not just you, Chief, but the way that that firefighter and those paramedics, the way everyone did what they needed to do, the way they collaborated without thinking twice about it, I know that 
we lost an ungodly amount of people that day. But yeah. I can only think, Chief, I can only think, if it were not for you, if, we, if it were not for all the other, the firefighters and paramedics and all the great cops from New York City Police Department, how many more lives would have been lost? You know, so many people know stories about what happened that day. But how about those people that were in that stairway? How about those people? You know, I mean, that's, to me, Chief, that's why not only, are, you know, are you more than worthy of, of the Medal of Valor, but you're worthy of the respect of every American, and then some. I mean, this is the kind of person people want to be, just like you. And this is why all of the parents that are listening right now, and, and a special shout to all those young ladies out there that write us in from high school and college and say that you want to be a cop someday. Well, this is a cop's cop. This is what it's all about. And by the grace of God, Chief, you brought to the hospital, and then what happens? Um, you know, uh, um, the, there was good news and bad news that the surgeon said to me when um, I went to the hospital. She said, yeah, I have good news and bad news, and it had been a long day at that point. And I said, well, what's the, you know, give me the good news, you know. She said, well, the good news is, is, um, you know, you need to go into surgery. We have an operating room available, and I'm the surgeon. I said, oh, that's great. And I said, what's the bad news? And she said, well, because you've had blunt force trauma to your head, we we can't um, put you on anesthesia. So, um I, I went through the surgery, but I have to be honest with you, Paul, we just thought so many people were going to rise out of those ashes of yeah. the, the, those buildings, and um, it just never, um, it never happened. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to make one other point is that, you know, I'm one person that you're interviewing, but I am representing you know, hundreds and hundreds of other officers and firefighters and EMS workers who responded that day, who displayed such professionalism, who just put their their job first and did such a phenomenal job. And I know that it's the worst terrorist attack to ever occur on American soil, but I also want you and, and, and the your listeners to... Remember that it was also the largest rescue effort ever on American soil right. um, for the horrific number of people that died. Um, it's estimated for each person that died that we were able to get um, 10 people out of that building. That's and, um, and I think that we should remember that in, the, in, the, in our darkest hours, um, we saw the best of people come out. Not not only people who responded, but um, as a nation, um, what people were willing to do on that day. And Chief, that leads me to, to my last question for you. Um, as a 36-year veteran of the NYPD, the commanding officer of the Office of Collaborative Policing, a two-star chief for the police department in New York City, which is used as a benchmark for others worldwide, and someone, and for everybody listening, and I know this is a fact for someone whose peers describe as the quintessential cops cop. What's your message to all our listeners here at CBS News Radio about that day and how indicative courage is to the human spirit of all our first responders in this great country? 
You know, I think that um, courage is innate in most people who join um, organizations that are first responders. And I think that um, we saw it on a massive scale on September 11th. But I have to tell you, each and every day, um, I think nationwide, our first responders, be it officers, firefighters, EMS, um, there are situations every day that people show that courage. It's just not recognized um, as such. So to all your listeners, if you see a first responder today or tomorrow or next week, stop and say thank you because um, I think it's because people have a harder goal that they do this public service. And you're absolutely right, Chief. You know, a couple of weeks ago we, we did a show and we were talking about something very similar in that nature, and, and we went out and to to the entire public and we did a hashtag on that and we've had incredible response and the, and and what we were talking about we were talking about in the wakes of the shooting in El Paso and um in Dayton and how police presence sometimes sometimes is looked at by citizens as you know unnerving and what i was pointing out at that point is when you see that Think of how quickly and how many lives were saved in Texas and in Dayton because how quickly the police responded. And to your point, yes. which is exactly my point that I made there, we in this country need to change the narrative. And, and remember, and my, my, my statement here is remember what, what Chief Tobin just said. It, it piggybacks beautifully into what we were saying a couple of weeks ago. When you see a cop on the side, I don't care if it's at a mall, if it's, uh, you know, out someplace getting something to eat or at a park or, you know, at a public event. Just go by and say thank you. They don't real. they're not expecting it. It'll make their day and it means an awful lot. So, Chief, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more uh, on behalf of everyone here at CBS News Radio and certainly our entire staff at Security Matters. I want to thank you very, very much for taking the time to join us, for sharing your incredible, heartwarming, powerful story uh, for being the person you are to your community and to the national community, being a leader in law enforcement, um, and being a leader of people. And I'm, I'm proud and I'm incredibly grateful to call you a friend. So, Terry, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. We're going to take a quick break and we come back. I'll close for today. Stay with me. And now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas. And as we close for today, I just want to leave everybody with one thought. Um, I remember very distinctly what everything looked like and smelled like on that day and, and the months to follow. And I mean months. Um, if you were there or if you had somebody that was there, you know as well. And the thing I want to make sure that we all remember about September 11th is that this didn't happen to New York. It happened to America. And, you know, as Chief Tobin said, and I'll reiterate, yes, we saw evil, but we also saw the greatness of the human spirit. And we've continued to see that. And I think we need to embrace that. And last but not least, what I ask everyone to remember is, and this doesn't take much. Honestly, it doesn't take much. If you see a police officer on the side of the road, if you stand there next to somebody in line and you see they have a, correction officer's badge or patch on the uniform, a firefighter or paramedic, no matter what part of law enforcement that you see, just say thank you. 
You know, just say, hey, man, thanks. Appreciate what you do. It'll take you less than two or three seconds, but it'll make their day, their week, their month, their year. They'll never forget it. It means that much to them. We don't pay them much. God knows we don't pay them much. So they're doing it for the right reasons. And I ask you to remember that. And in memory of everyone that we lost, of all the people that are injured that will live like that, the countless amount of people that have died of cancer as a result of this, to all the family members that were robbed, we thank you. We think of you, and you will always remain in our thoughts and prayers. On behalf of everybody here at Security Matters, have a great week. Be safe, be well. Nine months after the World Trade Center attacks, the site had been cleared, except for one nearly 60-ton beam. By then, covered with the names and photos and jottings of the people who had done the clearing. And just as it had, each time human remains were found. Activity at Ground Zero stopped when that last column was removed and reverently borne away. But when the 9-11 Memorial Museum opened in 2014, 12 years later, there it was, the building built around it. When you go there, it all comes back. The feeling you had that day if you lived in New York City, a sickness almost. John was a music and dance king. You're haunted again by the faces of the lost. You know, she had just a wonderful, successful life. All the smiling people whose stories have to be told for them here. What you're looking at here is called Impact Steel. This is where 9-11 begins. On Friday mornings, Greg Carafello is a volunteer docent. I'm a survivor of two world trades, so I was here that day, and I owned the business in, inside the building in two world trade South Tower. The owner of a digital printing business in the South Tower, he nearly died on 9-11. His office was destroyed. These stairs are also known as a pathway to freedom. Because and yet here he is, week after week, right where it happened. What do you get out of it? I get a freedom from, the, from, the, uh, from that day. What do you mean? There's a certain um, luggage that you carry since that day. And for me, it's a freedom to, to, to speak to the people and to share the experience, but also um, it's just cathartic. It lets me feel better in sharing my story with them. Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.